Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Okay, why don't we get started then? Um, my name's Paul Sheard. I'm a senior fellow here in the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government. It's a great pleasure today to uh, be able to introduce Professor Yir Listerkin uh, and uh, keep your raffles going there as well if you haven't stuck your, uh, your name in there for a couple of books. So Professor Listerkin is the Shibley Family Fund Professor at Yale University uh, Law School. Uh, he's been honored with the Milton Friedman Fellowship uh, from the Becker Friedman Institute at the University of Chicago. He's also vis- uh, served as a visiting professor at uh, Columbia Law School, Harvard Law School, so welcome back to the campus, uh, and New York University School of Law. His um, recent research work is really quite um, path-breaking, I believe, and is looking at the interactions between law and macroeconomics. Obviously, law and economics, microeconomics, there's a grand tradition, but much, much less attention has been paid to the uh, interactions between law and macroeconomics, which brings him here today. Uh, has just published recently a book on the topic, uh, and uh, we're delighted to hear uh, a lot more about it from Professor Listerkin. So, over to you. Thanks very much, uh, Paul. It's great to be here. Uh, so, this, this project was, was almost entirely motivated by the Great Recession. I would say before the Great Recession, in law schools there was essentially no discussion of, uh, of macroeconomics. Uh, and I, the best justification of that was, we'll let other people handle that. Uh, that. The central banks got it. So we can focus on the things we do, and we'll let, uh, we'll let the central bank uh, handle, handle the, the macroeconomic issues. And that's easy, relatively easy to say if, at least in the places where lawn economics is, is going strong, there's not so much macroeconomic turbulence. So I would say that was, the, uh, that was the, the status quo. And the Great Recession uh, altered that. All of a sudden, it was, we can no longer say that the central bank has got it or that macroeconomics is, uh, is a sort of a limited and solved uh, problem. So I don't need to go over the... Uh, the, the harms, but, but what's interesting is that in law schools I do, because there's still a real impression. Everyone agrees that the Great Recession was bad, but, uh, but, but there's still uh, quite a lot of reluctance to, to think that there's something that lawyers have any role in the response. So, uh, but what are the responses to really bad recessions. I'm not particularly worried about sort of central bank, like a Volcker-type recession, or, or any central bank tightening recession to, to nip inflation in the bud. I'm also not particularly worried about, uh, 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 about, uh, about inflation in this uh, book. This is really when you're in the bad state of the world. So what, what to do about, uh, about sort of the aggregate demand uh, dominated recessions where, where unemployment is way above any reasonable definition of, of where it should be. So 
there's a few possibilities. One, and I, uh, I take that quite seriously, is not to do anything, not because we don't think it's a problem, but if you're sufficiently institutionally pessimistic, uh, then, uh, then you might say that the cure is worse than the disease. Uh, and, uh, and so you know, if you're in favor of a gold standard uh, and you're in favor of like a balanced budget amendment, that is functionally where, where you are. Uh, and, and you can do this, a fair-minded person could at least, I don't agree, but, uh, but I think that, again, if you're sufficiently institutionally pessimistic, uh, you think like the government will just mess it up, then, uh, then this might be the least bad option. Uh, but, but that's not what we do, and it's not what we've done in, uh, in Western societies for, for really since the Great Depression. Uh, so there are two kind of dominant, uh, dominant responses to bad recessions. One uh, is monetarism, uh, which is use, have the government be in charge of the money supply. The government often delegate it, almost always delegate it, to an independent central bank uh, and have them manipulate the money supply to mitigate these, these bad recessions. I would say that as an intellectual matter, that has been an incredible success. Uh, you know, the, the central bank response to the Great Recession was dramatic. You know, they expanded balance sheets uh, at unprecedented levels. One, one example I like to point out of this is that the Bank of England, which is the oldest central bank, uh, you can kind of trace uh, British history in the Bank of England's balance sheet. Uh, at every war, uh, typically the balance sheet goes way up. So the, uh, so the Bank of England's role in the economy as a percent of GDP was at its highest in the Napoleonic Wars, then in World War I, then in World War II, uh, and its aftermath. And then, but one thing that's very interesting is that the, because of monetarism, uh, the Bank of England's balance sheet was actually higher as a percentage of GDP in 2010 than in any of these previous, uh, than in any of these previous uh, events, even though as serious as the Great Recession is and was, uh, you know, it's not World War II uh, if, you're, uh, if you're Britain. But, but what's going on there is that monetarism is, uh, is emphatically pushing uh, uh, towards, towards a more forceful response. So there's an intellectual difference between 2010 and all those things that happened before the Great Depression, things like that. Uh, and then Keynes writing in the, the Depression is if there's a shortage of demand, rather than having the, uh, the central bank handle it, he wants the government to step in, uh, either with direct spending, uh, just whatever shortage of demand there is, just have the government fill it by spending more, or of course, uh, or, or by having the government lower taxes uh, is, uh, is an alternative way, and, and that would stimulate private demand. Uh, the, the motivation of the book is, it turns out in the Great Recession, we, I would argue that we push too really, really hard. There are people who want to push it harder. I'm skeptical about that uh, for reasons I'll explain. Uh, and uh, three, well, that's nice, but... Uh, but it, we weren't able to do it for whatever reason. There are many places where they, they bind their own hands on fiscal policy and just say, if you, if you have a balanced budget amendment, you, cannot, uh, you can't run deficits uh, equal to, uh, to the size you would need to handle, uh, to handle recessions. So 
you may you may want to do that, but the question is, are there any other tools that we can offer uh, if two and three don't work? Uh, and there's lots of reasons to think that they won't work in the future. So the point of the book is twofold. Uh, number one, it's to offer a new menu of tools for aggregate demand management having to do with law and regulation. And I'll give you lots of examples in the talk uh, of this. That's number one. And then number two, and I think we can exaggerate the distinction between one and two, is that monetary and fiscal policy, their, their powers and the limits to their powers are often very much grounded in law. Uh, and uh, so most people don't look at, that, look at their powers with a legal lens. I'm going to do that and kind of see how some of those powers and some of those limitations look like from a, uh, from, from a legal slash institutional lens. All right, so monetary policy. So I'll go quickly through monetary and, uh, and fiscal, and then I will get to uh, what I call expansionary legal policy. So monetary policy. Uh, we saw in the Great Recession that it's constrained. It's, it's, uh, it's, highly constra at the z it's relatively easy for the central bank to lower short-term interest rates. And they did it very quickly in the Great Recession. Interest rates went down to zero or... Uh, negligibly different from zero relatively quickly. The question is, what do you do then? If there's still a lot of, uh, if there's still a lot of aggregate demand shortage, if you're still way far, far away from where you think you should be. What central banks did is they turned to uh, a whole hodgepodge of tools called unconventional monetary policy. Uh, and I, I have nothing against unconventional monetary policy. I just think that it's, it's limited. Uh, is really my constraint. Uh, so what was unconventional monetary policy? It was, you know, using the central bank's power to create bank reserves to buy a lot of bonds, uh, buy a lot of typically long-term government bonds, bringing down the long-term uh, government interest rate. Uh, and you can see, like, it was pretty dramatic. You know, we have a relatively stable balance sheet going way, way back in both the US and Europe. And then sort of unconventional monetary policy starts. And you know, we haven't yet seen the unwinding of unconventional monetary policy. Uh, every time we try to unwind, something seems to happen that, uh, that we stop very quickly. Uh, so that's that. Uh, what do I think of all this? I think the, the evidence is that it helped. Uh, it didn't help dramatically. It, uh, it's, it's, it's better than doing nothing, I would argue, but, uh, but questionably effective, very hard to unwind, uh, as we've seen. We, again, we haven't really ended this experiment in unconventional monetary policy. Uh, if there's another recession and uh, balance sheets go up by another you know, five or 10 trillion, uh, then you're gonna start running out of like government debt uh, or things like that to finance. Uh, and so that leads to a third point. It, it really leaves central banks in an unprecedented role. Uh, they are, they're, they're pushing really hard on, on tools that are not very well established. Uh, and they can keep pushing harder. Uh, but, but at some point, and it, it's dangerous for a central bank. It's dangerous for a central bank in that uh, if, if you want to protect your independence, 
Part of protecting your independence is not having other people think you're, you're crossing over your, uh, your legitimate sandbox uh, or something like that. And the more, when, when a central bank does this, uh, all of a sudden people are like, hmm, well, I was okay with their independence here. Uh, I might feel different about their independence there. So I, I, I think you need to be very careful about this. I think with things like helicopter money, all the more so. Uh, I can talk about that in questions. And then in Europe, this is not just a sort of prudential idea. The, the, the Lisbon Treaty, for example, uh, are, prohibits monetary financing of government debt. Uh, you, you know, the, uh, exactly what that means is going to be hard to figure out. But I think if it means anything, it means that the ECB can't own all uh, all Eurozone government debt. Uh, well, they, with, with this increase here, uh, they're, they're now in many places getting to uh, 20 or 30 percent of, uh, of government debt. Uh, and, and again, you know, there's, uh, if there's another recession, then, you know, at what point would that stop? So I just want to, j- just one point, I think, sort of really pushing the limits and probably better to pull back. Then, uh, then there's something called fiscal policy. Uh, so again, raise government spending, lower taxes. Uh, the text, that is at the zero lower bound, that's the textbook macro response to, uh, to, to a, a shortage of spending. Just, just have the government do it, both by, uh, by spending directly and by, uh, by lowering taxes. It didn't work so great in the Great Recession. Not, there was some. Uh, first of all, there was a lot of automatic stabilization. Like deficits went way up in, uh, in, in 2009 and 10 automatically, like just because uh, revenues went down because incomes went down. And spending, spending on things like unemployment insurance went up. And then there was a modest discretionary stimulus package, modest being you know, $800 billion, but over a few years. Uh, and... Uh, it just, and that's in the U.S. Uh, in, in many other, in, at, at the U.S. state level, by the way, fiscal policy was, was a nightmare. Uh, you know, U.S. states, which are constrained by balanced budget requirements, cut spending and relatively dramatically. You know, if you look at, like, their head, the head counts of government employees, uh, states really, really cut things down. If you look at net government investment, over this, uh, over this period. It goes way, way down. So it turns out that institutionally it is, it is hard, with the exception of the automatic stabilizers, things like the income tax and unemployment insurance. One thing I'd like to, that I argue about in the book is macroeconomists have a very sort of shallow view of government financing. When they talk about automatic stabilizers, they're thinking of an income tax and they're thinking of something like unemployment insurance. But but real-world government finances are a lot more complicated. There's all sorts of like hybrid instruments. So, uh, uh, and I argue in the book that many, many, many of these hybrid instruments have unintentionally pro-cyclical qualities. So I'll just give you one example, and I'm happy to talk more about the others uh, at any point. But tax expenditure. So what is a tax expenditure? A tax expenditure is government spending through the tax code, in a nutshell. It's uh, if you're the U.S., and you want to subsidize health care. We often subsidize health care by, by making it tax preferred. So 
if you are employed by the Kennedy School and the Kennedy School is giving you health insurance, you are not paying tax on that, uh, on that form of compensation. Uh, it's worth about $200 billion annually in, uh, in the U.S. Uh, and, and the best way to understand it is that, well, the government could have spent directly on our health care, uh, subsidizing it, but instead it does it through, this, uh, through our employer and through the tax code. That actually has an unintentionally pro-cyclical effect on, uh, on the budget, and how does that work? Well, the subsidy is tied into employment, okay? In order to benefit from this subsidy for, uh, for health insurance, you need to be employed. What, happens in, what happened in the Great Recession? Employment went way down. Uh, so all of a sudden, there were a lot of people who were getting government subsidies for their health insurance, who are now unemployed and are now not necessarily getting a government subsidy for their health insurance. Now, we could talk about Medicaid, but we knew about Medicaid, right? This is something we didn't know about. And indeed, when you look at the, the cost of the tax expenditure for, uh, for employer-provided health insurance, so that has, that has gone up every year from 1960 through the present, basically, uh, with the exception of one year, and that one year was 2009. So in the one year when we most wanted sort of you know, government expansiveness, government profligacy, here we've, we've constructed a very large program, right? Like a 150 or $200 billion program that is actually pushing against everything else that we're, uh, everything else that we're doing. That's gonna be true of almost all tax expenditures. Uh, so tax expenditures are worth roughly 1.5 trillion cumulatively. Uh, so an, an unintentionally pro-cyclical $1.5 trillion program is a really bad idea. And I think that, but no one has really talked about it. I think, I think one reason people haven't talked about it is that lawyers spend a lot of time thinking about tax expenditures, but we never think about, uh, about macro. And economists, uh, other than, public, than sort of microeconomically public finance-oriented people, tend to think the, uh, the other way. And by the way, I can show you lots and lots of examples of these sorts of effects, where there's relatively complicated government spending programs that when you follow them through to their end have unintentionally pro-cyclical uh, effects. Okay, uh, so I am, I am very, very much in, f in favor of, of thinking about these, understanding them, and designing kind of circuit breakers so that they don't have these, uh, these effects. The circuit breakers could be getting rid of tax expenditures, but it doesn't have to be. It could be something that, okay, we know in, uh, when unemployment goes way down, that when employment goes way down, that this tax expenditure is gonna have these unappealing properties. We need to do something to uh, kind of change that. Uh, okay, uh, and then on top of that, uh, one thing I argue about, it, what I argue for is that Fiscal policy is normally the province of the legislature, uh, but there's actually a decent amount of scope for regulatory agencies to conduct sort of modest fiscal policy on, uh, on the side. So one example that I, I like is tax withholding. So especially after the 2017 Tax Act, the IRS has incredible uh, discretion over how much to withhold. And indeed, this has been in the news lately with people getting uh, relatively low refunds. Why were they getting low refunds in spite of a large tax 
decrease, it's because, uh, it's because withholding went way down. Uh, I would argue that withholding is a potential macroeconomic tool. If, uh, if, if, things, if the economy is booming, the IRS can say, for this year, we're going to withhold a lot. Uh, at the very least, that will delay consumption until the big refund. But often refund checks, because it's a one-time lump sum, are more likely to be saved than, uh, than weekly, uh, than, than weekly uh, an, a little extra in every paycheck. So in, uh, in a boom, you can withhold more. And in a bust, you can withhold less, uh, thereby, stimulating, uh, thereby stimulating spending. Uh, tax withholding is a really big deal. Uh, it's, uh, you know, often there's uh, a few... There's easily, you know, there's many hundreds of billions of dollars in refunds. Uh, adjusting that by, you know, 15 or 20 percent a year is actually a non-trivial uh, sort of tool of macroeconomic stabilization. Uh, there are many other. The IRS, as you can imagine, is constantly functionally making fiscal policy. If they adopt a rule that, uh, one example I like to give, not because it's important, because it's uh, kind of silly, is the IRS is constantly changing its mind on what to do about frequent flyer miles for, uh, for, that you get from work. Uh, is that compensation, uh, where you earn frequent flyer miles on a work trip, and then you can use that to turn that into, uh, you, you can turn that into your own trips. So it's functionally a form of compensation. The IRS has flipped a number of times uh, on whether this is or not. The point is, that, like, when, they, when they say it is taxable, that's a form of contractionary fiscal policy. When they say it is not taxable, uh, that is a form of expansionary uh, fiscal policy. And the IRS is not really thinking in these terms. Uh, at least when things are bad enough, they should be keeping an eye out on what else is happening in the, uh, in the, in the economy. Uh, another example that I like to emphasize is on student debt. The, uh, the Student debt is contracted out by uh, the, the, the government is the biggest lender uh, to students in the country, uh, by far. Uh, and they've contracted out collections to, uh, to, to a private entity. The private entity does not look at economic conditions when it's trying to get collections. Uh, I would argue that uh, that, that is mistaken. That, uh, that by functionally kind of uh, relaxing your collection activity uh, in a really bad recession, uh, and then uh, relative to other times, you would functionally get a, uh, a stimulus uh, without having to go through Congress at all. Okay, uh, I, will stop, uh, I will stop with there. And then what I think the most unusual part of the book is what to do if, uh, if both monetary and fiscal uh, run out of gas, run out of juice. What do you do? You're still in a bad recession. You've maxed out your monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, what can you possibly do? Uh, and, uh, and I argue for something that I call expansionary legal policy, which is the use of law and regulation to stimulate spending in depressed economies. Uh, and I would actually argue that historically, this was relatively, this is not a new thing. Uh, the Great Depression, uh, the New Deal, was every single thing the New Deal did was, was its number one focus at the time was to stimulate the economy. So like the, you know, the National Industrial Recovery Act was a form of, uh, of law and macroeconomics. 
That doesn't mean it was a wise form of law and macroeconomics, but that was emphatically its, uh, its goal. Bretton Woods is all sorts of restrictions on law. We're going to say uh, we're going to interfere with certain contracts in order to, uh, in order to stimulate spending. Uh, another example, the, the gold clauses that were, so what happened in the Great Depression was the U.S. left the gold standard uh, in, the, in the first hundred, in the hundred days. Uh, but it turned out that most debt contracts, uh, they had a provision allowing the creditor to demand payment in either currency or gold. So there was a problem. Let's say we've now left the gold standard. Great. We've left the gold standard. But what has happened is that we've left the gold standard, but we haven't really helped any debtors because the creditors can demand payment in gold. So, uh, so we haven't actually uh, made things better for, for debtors. What did, what did the government do? They basically canceled that provision of the contract. They said, you know those gold clauses? Well, they're not enforceable right now. Uh, and this was a controversial Supreme Court case, but this is really law, right? This is no longer monetary policy. We're talking about debt contracts uh, and, and how they're interpreted. And, uh, and the federal government basically said that whatever the law used to be, you know, that clause, that clause is no longer applicable. So, so there was a time when this was emphatically a part of our, uh, a part of our macroeconomic toolbox, but I know of almost no examples of this uh, during the crisis, and I'll just give you a few. Uh, at various levels of, uh, of government. So one thing, and one, one thing that I like to talk about is utility regulation. So utility regulation, uh, or uh, uh, is the way it's currently done in half to two-thirds of states is functionally, again, a pro-cyclical thing. What has happened over the last couple of economic uh, recessions? What happens in a, in, a, in a recession? Electricity demand goes down. Uh, electricity goes, demand goes down and you're a regulated utility. What does that mean? You're, you have lower revenues. You're mo you mostly have fixed costs. Right? So you have lower revenues on a relatively fixed cost base. Your return goes down. What do you do? You go to your regulator and you say, look, our, my, our return is lower. We need to raise rates. Uh, and it seems that uh, you know, residential rates uh, in, uh, in recessions over the last couple of uh, recessions have gone considerably up. And by, that, by the way, it, it's uncoupled from wholesale electricity prices. Wholesale electricity, pr electricity prices go well down. Residential rates go, uh, go up. Uh, that is crazy. That is a, a transfer from, uh, from utility consumers to utility investors uh, during the bad part of a recession. Uh, I would argue, I would submit that the utility investors are much better able to bear recession risk than utility consumers. Uh, utility consumers, utilities are a much bigger deal for, for the poor than taxes, including including payroll taxes. Like the, the, these are uh, utilities, especially with the poor poor. Uh, this is who are really spending 100 cents on the dollar. Uh, this is hitting them. Uh, a, an increase in utility rates is a much bigger deal for them than an increase in taxes. Uh, so what I argue for is that uh, we should flip the risk. U utilities still need to get their cost of capital over the business cycle. 
But instead of saying, you know, they should get their cost of capital every year and having the consumers bear the risk of, uh, of bad recessions, I argue that, uh, that it should be a business cycle adjusted uh, cost of capital. So in a recession, utility regulators would hold the rates down uh, and then would allow the rates to uh, and then would allow the rates to increase more than they would have otherwise uh, in, in the recovery. Uh, so again, it's just a transfer of recession risk. Uh, another way, if you're looking for uh, one way to uh, to stim one one sector that is highly highly procyclical is the construction sector. It was booming in 2005 and 2006, and then shrunk down to almost zero in uh, in 2009 and 10. Uh, and that's understandable. You know, credit got incredibly hard to find. Uh, people were concerned about demand. Uh, it's, it's not a strange thing, but is there any way to fight against this? Because, uh, because it's very, very costly for the construction firms to be laying people off for a while. And now, of course, there's a shortage of construction workers. Uh, so one, thing, one way you could do this uh, is one, one way we do it is with like investment tax credits and stuff like that. We do this with fiscal policy. We could also do it with regulatory policy. If we told people in Cambridge that if you build in 2009 or 10, you can get a couple of extra stories or something like that uh, on your building, then, uh, then all of a sudden there would be an incentive for now to, uh, to build. It would be, it's, it's very similar to cutting taxes in a, uh, in a recession. Now, that shouldn't be the only factor, right? We shouldn't just allow, uh, we shouldn't just allow you know, incredibly tall buildings. You know, I, I, I don't think zoning is, is entirely a bad idea. But I do think that uh, you know, if the goal is to stimulate the economy, this is a very powerful tool. In New Haven, by the way, uh, this actually happened. There was one very, very tall building built in New Haven uh, during the crisis. It was an all-equity building. Uh, how did it get approved? It's clearly not according to the zoning code. Uh, but the construction union that was going to be constructing the project, they came out in full force to the zoning hearing. They were, a lot of people were unemployed. And they basically said, like, we will continue to be unemployed unless you approve this, uh, this project. And that, that worked. Uh, so, you know, there's, uh, there's all sorts of things along those lines. Government procurement rules. Uh, the shovel-ready projects uh, of 2008. 2010, President Obama says in a New York Times magazine interview, it turns out there's no such thing as shovel-ready projects. Uh, that is not from God. Uh, it's, it's, it's the lawyer's fault. Uh, in, uh, in part, we have very, very elaborate government procurement rules uh, that slow things down. Whatever, I don't want to take a stand on, what, uh, on, on the role of those things in ordinary times. But, but at, uh, so what happened, for example, just to give you an example on uh, shovel-ready projects. The, Congress passed shovel-ready projects. They passed them with sort of prevailing wage requirements. Uh, so the idea was, like, in order to spend the money, you had to show that you were paying a certain wage. It turned out that in, uh, that in a decent number of places, uh, the prevailing wage data did not exist. Department of Labor had to collect and develop that data, which took quite a few months uh, before anyone could start spending money. I would argue that that is misguided. If the goal is shovel-ready projects, then sort of business as usual on the procurement side is, is not good enough. 
It's uh, in a recession, in a bad recession, it's not just about you know, getting it right over the really long term. It's about, it's about the timing. It's about the temporal element. But law had no sort of give uh, on that. Germany, by the way, in its uh, 2009 stimulus package, suspended a lot of government procurement rules. Uh, they made it really easy to, uh, to spend uh, on the idea that, uh, that that would happen quickly. Uh, other types of, uh, of things that, uh, that could be done includes something like the, the simplest way to do things uh, is, is something like a spending mandate. Uh, if you, you require people, I mean, I'm not, I'm not necessarily arguing for this, but if the problem is people aren't spending, uh, one way to induce them to spend is to lower their taxes. Another way to induce them to spend is to command them to spend on something. So to give you an example on making their house more energy efficient or, uh, or something like that, there are all sorts of ways in which you can command people to spend. That's what regulators do all the time. Uh, there, is, uh, there is a role for that. You would need to do this sensibly. You can, at some point, if you're commanding too far, you may just get people to leave, uh, you know, to abandon their houses uh, or something like that. You know, there's a limit. But, you know, we have data on this. This is not something that, you know, the, uh, typically agencies have a very good sense of, very good is too strong, some sense of, uh, of how much direct spending this is going to, uh, a, certain, uh, a certain mandate is going to prompt in both the short run and the long run. Uh, usually in the long run, it's not that much. But in the short run, it could be a good amount. Uh, then there's all sorts of things. One area that I, I spend a little bit of time on is things like bankruptcy law. So, uh, so one, one cause of the crisis is, uh, is something people call the leverage cycle. So the idea being that, uh, that you know, when times are good, asset prices go up. If you're a borrower, you can now borrow more because your collateral is worth more. So, uh, so you borrow more, you spend, the economy does well, asset prices go up some more, you borrow more, the cycle keeps going up and up and up. Uh, and then, of course, in the downside of the cycle, there's deleveraging, right? Everyone is, uh, the, uh, my asset price has gone down, I can no longer borrow, uh, so I don't, I spend less, the economy does poorly, asset prices go down further, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, bankruptcy law could push against this cycle by, uh, by being different in bad times and in good times. Uh, it can kind of, uh, it, uh, you know, in foreclosures <coughs> may be much more costly in, uh, in 2009 or 10 than they are in 2006 or 7. But we have one rule, one uniform rule of, uh, of foreclosures, even though the economics of the foreclosure can be really different. So there's a whole, and you know, bankruptcy is really important. If you have, if the, one of the problems in a, uh, a really bad bust is deleveraging, then, uh, and here I'm borrowing from Mian and Sufi, but Mian and Sufi are not lawyers. You know, they don't go through what the bankruptcy code looks like. They, uh, you know, they have one idea, but there's really a million ideas. And even if you got the law passed as they want, you would still need the judges on board. Uh, they need, at least need to understand what's going on. So, and then there, there's lots of, ideally, these things would be enacted by a legislature. Uh, but they could also, there's a lot of existing legal and regulatory discretion that, uh, that I think could be used. Now, one concern about this, uh, and with this I'll end, is, okay, you know, so I just talked up the benefits of this. You might agree that there are benefits, 
but you might be deeply concerned about whether it's worth the, the cost and the risk. So it's a mess. Uh, it's, there, are, there are, you know, judges are not known for their macroeconomic acumen. Uh, regulators are not necessarily known for their macroeconomic acumen. But that, A, that's something that we can improve, especially on the regulatory side. You know, the EPA regulates very complicated scientific things. They've built up some scientific uh, expertise. Uh, the regulatory system could build in some, some area of macroeconomic uh, expertise that can then advise. Uh, you know, there's already OIRA, uh, which sort of, they're the cost-benefit analysis experts. We can imagine something similar happening on the macroeconomic side, where they kind of, they're pulling the trigger, and they'll, they, they will have more macroeconomic uh, expertise. Uh, but with that said, I don't want to pretend that there aren't real costs here. Uh, so I would only argue that, that we should do this when the, when the stakes are really high. So when there was bad recessions. This is not, a, this is not for fine-tuning the economy, for bringing inflation down point, uh, you know, 0.5%, for uh, nothing like that. It's really for that you know, once every 50 years uh, recession where, like after a financial crisis, something, uh, something like that. Th that's where I think that there's a, a real role here. I emphasize that, that at the zero lower bound, not only are things really bad, but the, tip of the, the, the monetary policy tool is not really available. So, uh, so that's a problem. Uh, but not only at the zero lower bound, another place where I can imagine thinking of this is in places where there's a clear like macro mismatch. So if you are, so here I'm thinking of Europe. Let's say you're, you're a single European country. You're in a really bad financial, uh, you've had a financial crisis. You've had a housing bust. But the rest of the Eurozone hasn't. Uh, and you're a small part of the Eurozone. So you don't have access to monetary policy. In Europe, you also don't have access to fiscal policy because of the stability and growth pact. Uh, you're, in fact, you're probably getting in trouble with the European Commission sort of uh, at exactly this time. So what do you do? So I would argue again here that you actually have a lot of tools uh, to stimulate your economy that, depending on the situation, may have more or less sort of EU oversight. But, uh, but there's a lot of sort of legal and regulatory levers you can use to stimulate the economy. One, and just one, just one well-accepted version of what I would say uh, expansionary legal policy is, is what's called macroprudential regulation. So what is macroprudential regulation? It used to be that like, capital controls at banks were constant over the business cycle. They, uh, you know, you needed, uh, let's say, 10% uh, sort of capital. Uh, and what we've moved away from, what we've moved towards, is instead business cycle variant uh, capital standards. So like when things are going well, you might say the bank needs to hold 15%. And then in the bust, you might say 5%. Uh, I'm very much in favor of macroprudential regulation, but I would argue that that's only the tip of the iceberg. And macroprudential, by the way, the critiques of macroprudential regulation is how are you going to know when times are good and when times are bad? Okay, uh, but we still think that it's worth the candle. I would argue that it would be worth the candle uh, in many more places. And just more broadly speaking is that by kind of diffusing macroeconomic responsibility, it makes things more complicated, but it also makes it more robust. If for whatever reason, we kind of tied our hands in an unintended way on monetary policy or something like that, uh, 
it's, it's much better to have sort of lots of sites where we can, we can respond than it is to just have a, uh, than it is to be putting all our eggs in one or two baskets, at least for when things get really bad. Uh, so with that, I will, uh, I've spoken about a lot of this. So why don't I, uh, why don't I wrap up here and, uh, and take some questions? Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Professor Lutherstick, that was a fascinating uh, presentation, um, and uh, really appreciate uh, you coming here to share your thoughts. Um, can I just maybe, while people gather their thoughts for, for asking questions, maybe just start at a, at a, a big picture level. W first of all, what reaction are you getting from your colleagues, mm -hmm. the, the legal fraternity? Mm -hmm. um, what sort of counter-arguments are you hearing from them? And given that we do have this grand tradition of, of law and economics, which has been very much focused mm -hmm. on the, the mm -hmm. micro level and, mm -hmm. and antitrust and mm -hmm. regulatory law and, and everything else, um, are there lessons from that half century or more of sort of law and economics, mm -hmm. talking to mm -hmm. one another, uh -huh. being aware of one another? Uh -huh. And is that a kind of potential sort of platform or fertile ground mm -hmm. on which you could sort of um, leapfrog mm -hmm. into getting some of these ideas mm -hmm accepted mm -hmm. and maybe sort of embedded in the, uh, the whole policy mm -hmm. uh, framework. Mm -hmm. yeah, so thank you. A couple of things on that. One is that I, the, re the responses are all over the map. One thing that I found is a lot of people who do law and economics, particularly in law schools, sort of took macro a long time ago, didn't like it, and have, uh, and have uh, decided to move on with their lives. So it's almost like I'm bringing up a bad memory for, uh, for them. Uh, and I think that, like, I've heard this story many, many times. And I actually think it's sort of emblematic. It just has not been on the horizon. So I think there is a decent amount of, of sense of people saying, like, boy, is this from left field uh, or, uh, or something like that. Like, where, where did that come from? People know about the Great Recession. Uh, but uh, And I would say there's been – there is – in things like financial regulation, there, there's a lot of openness and reception to this. But as you get, the farther you get from financial regulation, the harder and harder it is for, uh, for people to, uh, for people to, to accept. Uh, but, and, and many of the criticisms, by the way, actually parallel some of the criticisms of sort of law and, law and microeconomics when it was first getting started. So, uh, so many people were, what was the idea of law and economics? It's sort of like one of the goals of law, uh, if you're Richard Posner, the only goal of law, uh, should be efficiency. Uh, and there are many people in law who are like, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, law, what about justice? Uh, things like that. Like one thing that people don't like is the idea that two similarly situated people uh, who come, like two similar building projects, one in 2010 and one in 2006, would get a different treatment. People don't like that. I try to argue that they're not similar building projects. The building looks the same, but the, the, the overall effects are not the same. The, the people who are going to be working on the project in 2010, you know, let's say 40% of them would be unemployed, while in, in 2006 or today, let's say, you know, 5% of them would be unemployed. So they look like the same uh, project, but they are not. But that is, that can be a, uh, that can be a tough, that can be a tough sell. Mm -hmm. 
Someone who has some questions. Yeah, James. Thanks. Uh, maybe just to say who you are, James, as well. I'm James. I'm a visiting scholar for the economics department. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned now that unconventional monetary policy mm -hmm. is hard to unwind. Mm -hmm. And my question is, uh, I, I wonder if those legal policy measures could be easier to unwind mm -hmm. than conventional mm -hmm. monetary policy. Mm -hmm. Yes, it, so there's a, couple, there's a couple of ways in which it can be hard to unwind. So one is like a political economy story would be, and like, let's take the zoning. Like, let's say you had sort of a, uh, a while where you're allowing taller buildings in Cambridge. Uh, it may be hard sort of politically to then withdraw that when the economy, uh, when, when the, when the economy recovers. That's, that is a real risk. Uh, you know, there are, there are, there are ways you, you could, you could specify this. You know, you could, Cambridge could pass a, uh, a law stating that, you know, in over the next two years or something like that, or three years, uh, the, you know, you get 20% extra or something like that. So there are ways you can sort of institutionalize the time varying nature but I don't want to pretend that there isn't, uh, that that is easy. Uh, like one thing that a lot of people have talked about is sort of writing it into the statute. Like saying like that the rules, that the rules explicitly depend on some measure of unemployment or some measure of, uh, of GDP growth or something like that. And that has the advantage of being easier to unwind. It, indeed, it unwinds automatically. Uh, the concerns there are that what if that turns out not to be a good measure? Uh, and, uh, and this actually starts to parallel some of the central bank debate on like rules versus discretion uh, and, uh, and how, well, uh, how well this works. Uh, but, but one thing I'd like to point out is that law is, law is really about sort of uh, kind of announcing a standard and then showing how it depends on all sorts of different, uh, uh, different parameters. Like that's really what... Uh, that's what case law is. You know, you explain why it's similar to this and different to something else. So I, I would argue that it's really bad recessions are relatively observable. Uh, interest rates tend to be zero. Uh, unemployment tends to be really high. So uh, in the terms of that's really good uh, from a law perspective. If you're trying to explain why you're doing X at time zero and Y at time one, uh, it's really nice to have something that clearly changed between uh, time zero and time one. But I don't want to pretend that, uh, that this would be easy. I think it would be hard uh, uh, to enact in practice and, and potentially time consuming. Great. Um, I think we had a question in the second row. Yeah. Uh, you know, and if you could just uh, announce who you are as well. I'm sorry. I'm a local resident. Mm -hmm. okay. No, no, I've been. Okay, sounds good. Uh, you know, you were speaking about unwinding. Mm -hmm. and now there was a local uh, article in the paper mm -hmm. about uh, the uh, Cambridge removed rent control mm -hmm. and now they're having a hard time putting the genie back in the bottle yeah. because older residents mm -hmm. like us have a rental problem here mm -hmm. can't afford to live here mm -hmm. and uh, the, the rents are sky high so mm -hmm. isn't that an example of what you were saying that once you make once you take off a regulation uh, it becomes a permanent problem mm -hmm. and then there's no solution mm -hmm. to it so I, I, that is a risk. 
Uh, and I think it is fair, you know, going back to the very beginning, the question is, is that risk, that very real risk, does that, is that so large that we don't want to try this? I, I think it's an entirely defensible position to say that, like, I think this might help, but I think the costs that you're emphasizing are, are so great and so risky that I don't want to go there. I wouldn't agree with you uh, because I think that, like, the, the problem is so large. But, uh, but, but that is, I, I can't tell you that you're wrong. You know, it, uh, and, and indeed, if there's a certain place where, like, you're sure you'll never be able to put the genie back in the bottle, then that's not a good candidate for expansionary uh, legal policy. Uh, it's, it's much more in places where you think you can kind of adjust with the cycle. Uh huh. Okay. So on macroprudential and uh, like things like you know minimum down payment requirements on uh, on on purchasing a home, on something like that, I uh, you know I I don't think that that only needs to be like in emergencies. I think that that's a good idea as as part of a prevention. But I want to point out that like that idea is relatively new. Uh, I think like uh, people. I think Spain may have done this a little before the crisis, but pretty much no one. The idea that you would have sort of uh, requirements that change with the business cycle uh, is, uh, is, is a relatively new idea. And, and part of my argument here is, like, I'm, I'm emphatically in favor of that. But I think that, like, that can go, you know, th that's the tip of the iceberg. It's an important part. You know, it's more than the tip. Uh, but uh, but there's still you know there's this vast apparatus that we could uh, that we could apply. Yeah. Uh, my name is Bogdan. I work for Secretary Carter at the Welfare Center. Mm -hmm. um, my question, you touched on this a little bit, is um, kind of balancing uh, this approach through the legislature versus mm -hmm. through regulatory activism. Mm -hmm. What kind of political barriers do you see to that? Um, I guess recessions don't really discriminate between the parties, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how do you see those playing out? I guess Sure, please. Just add to that question. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you're focusing very much on the U.S. Yes. But obviously, I've uh, mm -hmm. looked across. Yes, very much so. Countries. Are there sort of differences that are really important between you know, the sort of 
separation of powers mm -hmm. style system mm -hmm. and a more parliamentary system, Westminster mm -hmm. style system. Mm -hmm. How would that play out as well? So to answer that question first, uh, there is sort of a tradition in economics that expansionary fiscal policy is more feasible in a parliamentary system where there are fewer uh, sort of veto gates and gridlock is less likely. Uh, and I think, you know, there's, there's some truth to that, although it's really, I, I think that can be overstated because often the, the veto gates are not necessarily the legislature, but it may be some, the growth and stability pact. In, uh, in the you know you may have some like overarching constitutional limitation uh, on so it's not like the parliamentary systems uh, went ahead with really aggressive fiscal expansionary fiscal policy in the recession with the exception of I think like 2008 yes 2008 9 but by 2010 you know most of the parliamentary systems have uh, have moved have moved away from that so uh, and and I kind of. You know, it, one, one thing I like about this uh, is that you can stimulate without raising the, uh, you know, government debt. And for reasons good and bad, people are really afraid of, uh, of high government debt. Uh, you know, I don't want to get into that debate on, uh, on, you know, on how much sovereign debt is a good or bad idea. But for whatever reason, people, I do have opinions. I think it's overstated, the fear, but, but it's there. Uh, and it's a strong thing, and so offering offering ways of stimulating that don't necessarily uh, require more government borrowing, I think, uh, may appeal to a, uh, a set of people who might be hard to appeal to otherwise. This actually relates to your question as well. Uh, you know, the who knows? Like in two, you know, in uh, in two thousand nine, you know, the the Republican Party was very very concerned about deficits. Uh, you know, I, at least in here, there are a few kind of deregulatory, uh, like the, the zoning thing, that I can imagine appealing to them, even though they claim not to be that worried about, like, if they're worried about the recession and they're worried about, uh, about these other things that are, they, they say they're worried about, there may be some room here for, uh, for this. I mean, on zoning, a lot of people would just say, that's just a good idea. Like, uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, but but that is uh, that's so the hope is that it's not there's not a clear like political valence here. Uh, of course, I also said like you know what about mandates? You know mandates are you know that's that's regulate you know that's that's up upping the uh, the regulatory ante in a uh, in a recession. Uh, so I don't think it has a clear like pro deregulatory or pro regulation <clears throat> valence. But, uh, but the hope would be that, you know, there's some common ground that you're kind of like tacking uh, on, you know, if fiscal policy is just not happening uh, for all sorts of reasons, maybe try a, uh, maybe, maybe try something where people don't feel quite as, uh, as strongly. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not clear, like, is this big government or small government? It's like, it's active government. That's for sure. But, but again, depending on how you implement it, it can be more, you know, it can have government playing more or less of a role uh, in any given time. Yeah. Um, I don't, this is not the most. Uh, sorry, sorry. 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 Sorry.
Uh, I've worked on a lot of regulatory design issues in India before I came here. And this is more of cultural questions. I've, there's so much wisdom now on the economic consequences mm -hmm. of these legal tools, mm -hmm. not on the macro space, but generally on just the impact of regulations. But it's mm -hmm. very hard to communicate it to a legal audience. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it has to do with just the background of lawyers and not mm -hmm. necessarily conversing on the grammar of economics and not the most quantitative, mm -hmm. that I often find this staggering communication gap between mm -hmm. the silos. And I'm wondering how the way forward, how valuable is all this wisdom if it's not being communicated, and how much of this has mm -hmm. to do with the change in, say, law school curriculum, mm -hmm. uh, just mm -hmm. law school design, so that the conversation is more mm -hmm. viable. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Uh, if I, I'll, I'll say now, like, maybe my number one goal, this is not what the book is written about, uh, but just teaching lawyers some macroeconomics is, uh, is maybe like the, uh, you know, like I say, like, what, what do I hope for? It's something along those lines. Uh, I think lawyers become, in the U.S., like more than 50 senators are lawyers, right? Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the dominant uh, sort of segue into politics. Uh, there's no macroeconomics in, uh, in law schools, none, uh, to this uh, to this point, maybe it's changing a very little bit. Uh, I think that it's really hard to tell like a senator, uh, we've never taught you about this thing, but there's actually this thing about fiscal policy that uh, in a recession, we want you to spend more. And remember, we've been telling you all about like you shouldn't overspend. Well, you know, hang back on that for some reason that I've never taught you. Uh, but, and I, I think like that's really hard. I think that uh, you know, it's, it's not in the culture of, uh, of, of, of law schools. And I think that that is a barrier to sensible macro policy uh, along the lines you, you say. And regardless, even if, you know, judges are approving these things or not approving these things, if they don't understand what the point is, then, then you're really at a loss. Uh, one thing to say, though, I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic uh, in the U.S., and I don't know how much time you spent in U.S. law schools, uh, like the language of microeconomics has really become very much a part of the curriculum. Uh, I, I would say, and it's, the law and economics movement is an incredible success uh, from that perspective. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible to get through law school now uh, without a good dose of microeconomics. Like people, people are taught about incentives constantly. Uh, so I think they do start to really think about incentives. So, uh, and so I think that has been a success, uh, but the asymmetry then really, uh, so you have people who are taught to think about like incentives, incentives, incentives. Uh, and then if you tell them in a recession that, you know, we need to stimulate spending or something like that, and they're going to say like, well, what about the incentives? Uh, you know, so lawyers are, are temperamentally worried about moral hazard. Uh, you know, the, the, and, and if there's one sort of lesson of, of macro, it's like you should be worried about that in the good times. Uh, you know, moral, the boom and not the slump is the time for uh, austerity at the Treasury, and that goes for uh, bankruptcy law, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, so I think that, you know, it is a problem. I think in the U.S., the, the uh, you know, econ microeconomics has been relatively successful in, I don't want to exaggerate, uh, but it, you know, relatively successful at penetrating law schools. And my hope would be that there's something along those lines uh, in macro as well.
please. So uh, that's true. I, I was at HLS like, about five years ago when I graduated, mm -hmm. but I've always wondered about why the law and econ evolution did not the way it is in the US. Mm -hmm. Because it's an exception mm -hmm. compared to the landscape of both developed and developing countries. Uh -huh. And is it because you think that students do a full undergrad and sometimes major in econ and math and then go to law school? Because mm -hmm. in other countries, you go to law school straight away. and how, how do you generate this movement? Mm -hmm. Because there's no conversation on even microeconomics. Mm -hmm. Many okay, yes. Yes. Countries. So that, you know, that is something that gets talked, it's like an intellectual history uh, question, an institutional history. Uh, I think that's right as a diagnosis, that, uh, that there's much, much, much more law and economics in the U.S. Uh, than, uh, than in other places. Uh, I... Exactly how that happened, I don't quite know. I would, I would argue that certainly in, in developing countries, uh, like let's take like Latin America, for example, I would say that the heavy micro-focus of law and economics may, may be one barrier. That you know, if you're talking about economics and you're not talking about inflation or, uh, or you know, prices and things like that, people are like, or capital controls or things like that, then it's to, in the U.S., that may seem relatively natural. But, in, uh, but you know, if you're in Argentina and you start talking about, you know, very sort of like relatively small interventions to marginally increase the if efficiency of law, people might be like, you know, we're, we're playing for bigger, we're, we're playing a different game. So that might, you know, having economics be the economics that people sort of live may be, Maybe one part of that. I don't think for a second that that's the uh, the primary uh, barrier. I think that uh, you know there's sort of cultural, institutional t type of things, and I think, as you say, the fact that law is much more of a discipline uh, in in other countries than it is in the U.S., where it is emphatically uh, an interdisciplinary uh, enterprise and has been for uh, for a relatively long time, plays a big role there. My name is Frank Fire. I'm a sustainable investor. Mm -hmm. My training is in the politics of, of economic development in East Asia from energy restoration to mm -hmm. sort of Asia crisis. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if you've taken, this, taken a look at this, taking your work and sort of taking a look at Asian, mm -hmm. East Asian economic development, mm -hmm. because really a lot of what you're saying in this uh -huh. is, 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 is a shared growth strategy that mm -hmm. you know, South Korea did, Taiwan did, Indonesia. Mm -hmm. The communist threat, and they were mm -hmm. responding to try to create a growth and growth mm -hmm. revolution. Have you have you thought much about these ideas and how mm -hmm. how it was sort of done in Taiwan, so, for example? Mm -hmm. So. I would call this like long run law and macroeconomics. So the idea would be that you know some industrial policy. Yeah. Uh, the best defense you can make for it is like we understand that it is sort of short run kind of inefficient and has these, uh, these bad incentives. But we're playing a long game. We're trying to grow. We need scale and things like that. So, uh, so like, there's a long-run, long-macro uh, argument that, uh, that, can be used, uh, that, that can be used. I have not developed that in the book. I do think that there's a lot of scope for, for that sort of thing. Uh, and I would say, in general, like, Asia... I, I think for them, you know, this is like, what's the Chinese response to, uh, to the Great Recession? 
you know, there's some government stimulus, there's some like central stimulus, but the main response is sort of like encouraging, like using, uh, there's a very powerful government that's using all of its levers uh, to get people uh, spending. And I would say, like when I speak about this with, you know, with a Chinese audience, they're typically like, "Yep, yeah, this is uh, this is how we uh, this is how we this is how we do it." You know, I like uh, uh, in you know, I think Japan would be uh, would be relatively would be relatively fertile ground for this. Like, so for example, like right now, there's a discussion. They're debating whether or not to raise their uh, their VAT. You know, this has been a long uh, this is a long postponed uh, sort of premise. And it's the it's the forever you know like macro versus like long run fiscal sustainability, but this may be another lever that you could use. Can I have a follow up? Of course. So so I'm thinking you know G8 basically was sort of, mm-hmm. or G7 and mm-hmm. sort of ran things and basically didn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. And in the financial crisis, and the first economy which responded from that was China. Yeah. Mm-hmm. China took up China responded strongly, and mm-hmm. they had a big meeting, and then so the West and late OE in Washington, and then then things started to turn. Have you thought about these ideas in terms of the transition from a G7 to a G20 and how these kinds of ideas are rippling through sort of the G20 ecosphere? To be honest, I I really, I have not, you know, and one thing I like about the the project is that, you know, there's often things that never even dawned on me uh, that uh, that I think are, uh, are relevant. Like, I think there's a lot of sort of international macro uh, that, that I'm not really covering here, uh, but that, that I think is highly, highly relevant. Uh, and, you know, I, my hope is that other people would, uh, would, would, would pick up that ball. Uh, I, I just don't know enough about it. One last question. Yeah. So how would you tie this type of thinking to uh, the emerging uh, sort of world? Uh, the intractable problem about climate change and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you how would you tie this to? So I have not. Well, I I don't have too much to say uh, about that. Uh, I would argue that the Green New Deal makes a hell of a lot more sense in a bad recession than it does in ordinary economic times. You know, like a command and control policy uh, uh, with a lot of you know, with a heavy regulatory slash government spending component, uh, I think like the crit- the crit- people treat it as if it's a uh, it's sort of I-, I I think that like now I don't think it's a good idea, but uh, but if we had enacted it in two thousand nine, uh huh, you know, I'm, I think it would have been a heck of a lot better than what we did in fact. Even though I'm sure there would have been plenty of uh, of 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 inefficiencies. But, uh, but again, you know, it, a bad recession is such a massive inefficiency that there's a lot of room for small inefficiency. You know, if you have someone employed uh, at, you know, at a subpar job, you're, you know, that compared to their best job, that's bad. But compared to, uh, compared to nothing, uh, you, you've gone a long way. You want another question, Jay? Yeah. Uh, Uh-huh. The uh, legal uh, policy uh-huh. measures could be embedded uh-huh. in structural 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the best I I am usually focused here on like the aggregate demand side. You know, I'm doing like short run uh, macro. So I'm what I've been thinking about mostly is is there a legal change that can stimulate demand in the short run? Uh, while the you know structural reforms are more uh, sort of expanding potential, but I think that there are examples that can be both, uh, and and that's the best. So here I, I'm, I'm thinking there's a, there's a close analogy here uh, with like with Keynesian uh, fiscal stimulus. So the uh, you know the if you're investing in infrastructure, like investing in infrastructure. Uh, has short-run aggregate demand stimulus effects and hopefully long-run uh, and hopefully long-run sort of structural effects on uh, on potential output. Uh, the hope would be that you know there are there are analogs on the uh, on the on the on the regulatory side uh, as well. And and just one thing, sort of broadly to say, I think it's it's not so surprising that like Keynes wouldn't emphasize this, because when he's writing, like there isn't that much of a regulatory state, right? Like he like the the the, the government is uh, like this is very much in the spirit of Keynes, but uh, but you know he's he's operating in a world where you know the government is relatively simple, uh, and indeed he famously criticizes Roosevelt for for doing things. In a complicated way, uh, but uh, but you know that ship has sailed. Uh, you know we, we have a very complicated. Uh, you know the, the government looks very very different from what it did then, and I think you know our macro policy should recognize that. Let me ask the last question before we do mm-hmm. a little lottery here, mm-hmm. which is something we didn't touch on here in mm-hmm. your presentation, but is up there on the mm-hmm. board. Um, is sort of how uh, let's stick with the U.S. Okay. Sort of how you would coordinate this kind yes. of effort mm-hmm. and who would do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you do have the National Economic uh, mm-hmm. Director of the National Economic Council. Yes. That might be one mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. who could take this mm-hmm. on. I don't know if Larry Cudler has a copy yes. of that. <laughs> we should send him one. Uh-huh. Um, but how do you see mm-hmm. sort of the coordinating mechanism? Yeah. And just one footnote to that. Um, you sort of modestly said, look, this is only for when the stakes are high, once mm-hmm. in 50 years kind of mm-hmm. thing. Concern I would have there is that if you really only had all hands on deck mm-hmm. once we have the uh-huh. you wouldn't have the institutional uh-huh. yes. awareness mm-hmm. and the institutional capacity Very. to sort of kick into mm-hmm. action. So how, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts there? So, so I, I have, I, I develop in the book, you know, it's a bit pie in the sky, but the, 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 uh, the, the dream is something like an office of, that's in charge of coordination of macro policy that will always exist. Uh, and the idea, because I, I think it's very important, it needs to be someone's job, and it needs to be someone's job throughout, both to create that memory, uh, and also, like, the best sort of law in macroeconomics is not, like, all of a sudden you wake up, uh, it's a bad recession, you think, what can we do now? It's, you have thought about, uh, in advance, these are things we can do, and it's just a matter of triggering those, uh, those levers. So I would very much like, uh, you know, sort of an organization that rather than just relying, saying, you know, hey, there are these existing centers, uh, because they already have certain jobs. Uh, I, I would rather have it say, like, you know, this office, it's their job to coordinate macro, macro policy throughout the, uh, the government, and they can kind of insist to certain 
agency is like, no, you should be thinking about this now uh, and uh, without doing anything. And then they would also be the one who could flip the switch. Remember when we told you to think about what you can do? Well, now's the time to, uh, to actually do that. Uh, I think. Would you take the NEC as it exists today and, and sort of rejig that, or would you think of something new? I, uh, you know, I, I think like the NEC, the way it exists today, is I don't think it's actually good to have. And here, you know, I don't have a particularly great sense of, you know, sort of the bureaucratic politics here. Uh, but, you know, the NEC has a lot of jobs. Uh, and, you know, I think they're inevitably going to sort of, once there isn't a recession, people will forget. If you have another job, you will forget very quickly, would be my guess. Uh, so that however well-meaning people are, I'm skeptical about if, if we don't have, like, a place where, like, this is what they do, uh, I, I'm just skeptical that, uh, that it'll, it'll really last. Great. Okay, thank you. And the book is available on Amazon to those who are unfortunate and uh, don't win the, uh, the lottery.